Thank you, ladies, for leading us. I'm uh, thinking about just pre-recording some message that says, congratulations, you made it, or you're the true Chicagoans, or uh, how about the weather, or something. I didn't even know it was supposed to snow this weekend, so uh, a little surprised when I realized I needed to shovel. Well, we are... uh, We're being amazed not by the weather, but by Jesus, by his claims and by his actions. Luke very carefully and methodically uh, profiles a number of ways that Jesus makes it clear early in his ministry that he's not simply another teacher. He's not just a wise sage. He's not another prophet. He is altogether different than that. Now, we're not actually covering all the things about Jesus that are amazing, right? We're not looking at his amazing love. We're not looking at his amazing grace. We're not looking at the amazing power that he has demonstrated in creation. That's the way John starts, right? John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Everything everywhere was created through the agency of Jesus Christ. That's amazing at an entirely different level. It's amazing because it's creation ex nihilo, right? out of nothing. We can't do that. We can start with something and come up with something else, but we can't start with nothing and come up with anything And so that whole aspect of Christ's creative abilities are amazing. And then there's just the creation itself that is amazing. The complexity, the majesty, the the expansiveness of what Christ has created goes off the charts. When I was was first uh, a believer and starting to clue in to some of these arguments, the Bible doesn't it uh, doesn't ever set out to prove God's existence. It just assumes it, right? Right at the very first sentence. But there are um, hints uh, here and there about different arguments for God's existence that can be made. Psalm 19 uh, sort of directs us towards what we call the teleological argument, the argument from design, the watchmaker argument. If you're walking through the forest, you find a watch. You, you think, well, there must be a watchmaker. This didn't fall together, right? All the springs and dials and numbers and hands. This is, not an, this is not dumb luck. Somebody made this. So that's the, the teleological argument. And early on, uh, 30 years ago, the, the teleological argument was uh, usually sort of explained in terms of the earth. And how amazing it was that the earth was perfectly positioned from uh, the sun. If it, was, if it was any closer, it doesn't work. If it's any farther away, it doesn't work. It spins at exactly the right speed to sustain plant life, right? Long extended periods of warmth and coolness. Because it's tilted, the water doesn't rush to the poles as it would otherwise, and so we can sustain life. Because the moon is where it's at and not any closer, if the moon was just was just 10, 15% closer, the tidal effect uh, would be such that we would have 35 feet waves washing over Kansas every day. 
life as we know it couldn't exist. So you just go down all these things. It's the perfect size. It's able to retain an atmosphere, but not so big that gravity isn't crushing. So you would make all these arguments about how remarkable it is that, that life existed. It argues for a designer. Well, in the last 10 years, the, the teleological argument has just gone in entirely different directions. As people, astrophysicists and others have talked about the, you know, the, the, force, um, the, the force strength of gravity or the cosmological constant. And all these numbers that they say, all these, these dials, if you will, that have to be precisely tuned to the billion, 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 trillionth degree. And if they were off by just a tiny fraction, uh, the, the explanation I was, was told was that if you, if you put out a, a, a measuring stick from one end of the galaxy to the next, right, so trillions of miles, and, and you pick the spot on that, on that ruler, if you were off trillions of miles, if you're off by more than an inch, the whole thing collapses. Right? And there's like 39 of these numbers. So, so you're seeing, interestingly, you're seeing now a real backlash in, uh, in certain communities against the argument from design because it's proving to be so effective. Right? So many people, so many uh, people of science are going, okay, well, I just, there's no way this is just random chance. There has to be some intelligence behind all this. So there are other things we could be amazed about. We are looking at those that Luke is handing us in Luke chapter 4 and 5. And, and so far we have, we've noted uh, Christ's claims and Christ's plans and Christ's power uh, over evil and over, over sickness and, and now we're going to see his power over nature. And the particular miracle we're going to look at is not perhaps as uh, initially flashy as when Jesus calms the storm. But the, the more we look at it, the more we realize how much is actually uh, there. So um, we're in Luke uh, 5. Last week we looked at this whole idea of, of Christ's mission and uh, I, I want to remind you, because this leads to this call to prayer, last week I said uh, Jesus was not willing to stay in Capernaum healing people. He said, I'm, I'm glad to help, but I didn't come to start a hospital. I am here to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I have to keep moving. And, uh, and I sort of took advantage of this, preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the fact that it was the, the anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday to say we need to understand our mission a little bit more uh, clearly. We have an assignment. Things are going quite well, but we could do more. We should do more. I believe in the end we will wish we did more. And that led me to say, look, we could take serving uh, others to a different level. We could take expanding our outreach as a church to a different level. And I asked you uh, to pray for wisdom as we sort of, as we try to figure out next steps. And so this Thursday, as you see in your bulletin, this Thursday is a call specifically to fasting and prayer. We've got a couple of times that there will be corporate gatherings here, another one at Highland Park campus. Um, you might not be able to make any of those. 
skip lunch and use that time praying. Pray for wisdom, direction, God's favor, uh, that we would make good choices. So that's where we were last week. We now look at this, uh, at this miracle that we see demonstrated in Luke chapter 5. Jamie has read it for us. I want to walk us through verse by verse, and then we're going to watch uh, a clip of this as well. Luke 5, beginning with verse 1. Uh, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, this is also known as the Sea of Galilee, uh, there's not hardly any water in Israel, and so a lake, albeit not a great lake, <laughs> but an 8-mile by 13-mile lake constitutes a sea. It's an ocean to them. So uh, the Sea of Galilee. On the day, one day, as Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He's a rock star at this point. He can do miracles. He can heal people. Everybody tries to get close to Jesus. They want to touch him. They want to hear him. They want to be there if he does something else, right? They, they want to be as close to Jesus as they can. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Okay? Washing their nets means the day's work is done. They're ready to move on. Uh, The nets are big. The clip we're going to see suggests a much smaller kind of net. I don't think that's what was being used. I think there's just big thousand pounds of net that that would be strung out between a couple boats and, and you would have to clean them every time because they would catch all kinds of debris and weeds and everything else. Um, mylar balloons if it's today, Starbucks cups, but uh, back then probably just weeds. So they're cleaning the nets. The day's work is over. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. So, translation, you've got to be kidding me. We were up all night and caught nothing. We stayed around because you were teaching. We've cleaned the boat and the nets. We're exhausted. And by the way, you're a carpenter. You don't know anything about catching fish. Uh, if you did, you would know that you're, we're not going to catch any fish now. This is not the time to catch fish. If you wanted to talk about building a table, or if you wanted to talk about like a Sunday school class or something that you know something about, yes, I would listen. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. We need to be amazed at how amazed they were at what is going on here. 
And, and what that means is that we, we just need to start by recognizing that, um, that we don't, it takes something to understand how great something is. You, you have to have a certain working knowledge of something in order to appreciate what is going on. And, uh, and it, Simon, uh, Peter, and James and John, they have that now. In, in chapter 4, I didn't, I didn't emphasize this point because we're going to look at healing next week, but at, in the end of chapter 4, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And it doesn't appear to make really much of a difference to Peter. He doesn't, he's not that impressed. Now, perhaps he's just conflicted, right? It, it's, his, it's his mother-in-law, and he's not, he's not certain he's excited about uh, her, new, um, her new health. But he doesn't say much, and I suspect that it's just because he doesn't understand medicine. But he understands fish, right? He, he's been fishing this lake his whole life. Uh, he knows what, when to fish, where to fish. He knows what a good catch looks like, and he knows a miracle when he sees it. And this is not simply a good catch. This, something miraculous has take, taken place. So his response is amazing, and Christ's response to him is amazing. Um, this clip gets a number of things wrong. <laughs> I think it's, it's only got one boat, so it's just Jesus and, and, and Simon or Peter. I think it doesn't, um, it, it leaves out Peter's astonishment, or at least plays it down. But it, it does highlight the fact that a miracle is taking place. Let's go ahead and watch it. What do you think you're doing? We're going fishing. There are no fish out there this time of day. In fact, there are no fish out here any time of day. Peter. Just give me an hour. And I will give you a whole new life. This says I want one. I tell you, there's no fish out there.
How did this happen? What did you do? I'm giving you the chance to change your life. Peter, come with me. Give up catching fish, and I will make you a fisher of men. What are we going to do? Change the world. As I said, um, it's Hollywood, so they leave out the other boat, they leave out the fact that the boats are sinking, they leave out James and John, they leave out the other people, and they, they dramatically downplay, I think, um, Peter's response to this miracle. But it, it does something for us that I want to leverage. I, I have five points I want to make out of this passage, and this one does a great job of the first one, and that is it, this passage highlights Christ's power over nature. He um, is not just a man. He has the ability to make fish swim into a net. Right? He has the, he has, in, in Luke's development, he has gone on record as showing the claims of Christ to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He has shown the, the plans of Christ to change the world. He has shown Christ's power over evil. He's shown Christ's power over sickness. He's going to show Christ's power over death. Right here, he shows Christ's power over nature. Now, it's not the only time Christ will demonstrate his power over nature. He is going to calm the storm. He's going to walk on water. He's going to turn water into wine. He's going to multiply food. Right? He is going to, he's, it's going to be clear. This is not just a man. He is more than that. And we see that in this clip that um, Jesus has the powers that no one else has. He has power over nature. Secondly, the, the second thing and a big thing that we need to see out of this passage is the response of Peter to what is going on. With the little bit of clarity that Peter gets into, into Christ, it rocks his world. And Peter's response is to say, it's, it's a shocking response. He says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Right? Now, let's just recognize that, that that would suggest a level of awe that is at the extreme. If, if they'd gone out there fishing and, and Jesus said, you know, throw your nets out, and Peter would go, I'm a fisherman, you're a carpenter, this isn't going to work. But they throw it out and they catch some fish, a few fish. You can imagine that Peter's response is, dumb luck, right? You can't do it twice. If it was more than that, right, a significant number, then you could imagine Peter's response being, uh, hey, Jesus. (laughs) Like, if you can do that again, let's be partners, you and me, 50-50, I'll do all the work, you tell me where to throw the net, and, and I promise you, you, we're set. If it was a little bit more than that, then you can imagine Peter simply being silent, like confused. What is going on? Like, I don't, I don't, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense to me. It, it's almost like, you know, am I, is there a camera watching me? Is this a joke? Am I being set up? Am I being punked right now? Is that what's going to happen? Because I cannot make sense out of this. 
But we get an even more extreme response out of Peter. And that is to say, get away from me, for I am a sinful man, and I do not belong in your presence. He is, in a sense, he's terrified of who Christ is and the power that he sees in Jesus. And this, this response is, um, is a little surprising to people, right? Because a lot of people think that if, when you draw into the presence of God that it's warm and serene. Right? I mean, Hallmark has a series of religious cards, And uh, if you find these cards that are, you know, sort of, sometimes the tagline is nearer to God. First of all, it's always pastels. And there's, there's, you know, stained glass with sunbeams coming through the stained glass. And there's some sentimental poetry that you're going to find on this. And it's all about, right, tranquility and peace and serenity and harmony and its warmth and its... (laughs) And... It's nothing at all like what we find in this book when people come into the presence of God initially. The the response of drawing into the presence of greatness at that magnitude is terror. It's Rudolf Otto, a uh, 19th century German uh, writer, scholar, secular guy, anti-supernaturalist in his his orientation, looks at uh, religion to study in in a book called uh, Nearer in the Presence of the Holy. He talks about the universal reports of people drawing into the presence of God. And he, he coins this phrase, numinous awe or numinous dread. Uh, Newman is the Latin word for divine presence. And and people drawn into the presence of God respond with this. He describes it as this, this, they're they're profoundly conflicted. The first response is, I'm broken, I'm unworthy, I'm a sinner, I'm a mess, I can't be here, I can't survive this. And the other response at the same time is, but I don't want to leave. Right, where will I go? Right? I, I mean, there's, there's nothing else like this, but I can't stay here. Well, what we see in, in Scripture as these, um, as these reports uh, of people drawing into the presence of God would very much confirm um, what Otto reports. Right? When Abraham, in Genesis, when Abraham meets with God, Abraham's response after that is to, just to say, I am dust and ashes. When Job finally gets an audience with God, right? Everything's going wrong for Job. Job hangs in, hangs in there, marshals through 20, 25 chapters of just sort of being good, sucking it up. Eventually he goes, you know what? I want an audience. I want, I, if God were here, I would plead my case, and he would understand that he has made a mistake. This is, this is not fair. And at the end of the book, when God shows up, right, all God does is ask Job a series of questions. He doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He just asks Job a series of questions. And Job's response is, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We get the same thing from Isaiah. Isaiah 6. 
He writes, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, and the train of the robe filled the temple. And woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, right? and I have seen the king. We, we get, we get this, this response here with Peter. We get later on in the book of Revelation, we get the response of John in uh, Revelation chapter 1 where he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. The response, the initial response of drawing into the presence of God is this awareness. I am small, broken, sinful. I can't survive this. And, and that is the response that we see from Peter. Now, I, Peter's statement is his, his, it's almost a confession of Christ's deity. I don't, I don't believe he thinks that, that Jesus is God. The Jews are the last people to be persuaded of this in one sense because uh, their understanding, <coughs> their understanding uh, is that there's one God. Right? Everybody else has got a thousand gods, so the, the idea that God would show up next to them is not all that shocking. The Jews, there's one God, he is holy and removed, and I can't get close to him. Right? The temple is all about layers of insulation around God, and only the high priest can go, and only once a year, and only after making the sacrifice. The idea for Peter to say, there's one God who is in heaven, and Next to me in the boat is God incarnate. I just don't think he's anywhere close to that. But he recognizes how remarkable Jesus is, and it's terrifying to him. Now, as as an aside, sort of in the margin, I'll say that occasionally I'll hear people say, you know, I don't don't do church. Uh, I meet with God um, you know, on the lake. I meet with God on a walk through the woods. I meet with God, read an article yesterday called Running as Church. It's about all these people who get together to run together on Sunday mornings for a, the runner's high as sort of a foretaste of heaven. I experience God when I'm running. I, I just always want to say, um, I don't think you're meeting God. Okay, so I, I get the idea that you like sort of the peacefulness and serenity and you're listening and all that's good, but I'm pretty sure you're not meeting God because what you're describing and what we get in the book about meeting God are two very different things. So we note, um, we note that uh, there is a profound moment that occurs when Peter sort of clues in. Number three, third thing to realize, the third thing to focus on is Christ's remarkable response to Peter. As soon as Peter says, right, I am a sinful man, go away from me, I should not be in your presence, the next statement from Christ is, Peter, come join me, and I will, I will make you a fisher of men. Right? And it's, this isn't just Peter sign up for this class and, you know, I teach it once a week and we'll have an hour together. It's come be with me 24-7, 365. Right? We're, we're going we're gonna to live together. Come walk through life with me. It is a profound invitation, a gracious invitation 
that, that Peter uh, is, is given by Christ. And by the way, the, the, the term fishers of men is, is sort of a hard, fishers of people, whatever. It's a hard one to capture. Um, I, I think it would better be understood, uh, I am going to teach you how to rescue people for life. I, I, I am going I'm, I'm to teach you how to do something that is going to ultimately change everything uh, everywhere. It's a profound moment. Now, two things worth highlighting here. One is, let's just recognize that um, God doesn't use self-important people. Right? The, the, the only thing that appears to matter on Peter's resume is his repentance. Right? It's when he, when he confesses that he's broken that Jesus says, great, let's sign up now. You're ready. Right? If you think that you are um, doing God a favor by following God, or that you bring just enormous gifts that everybody needs, right? That if you think you belong in the boat with Jesus, that's pretty clear indication that you don't belong in the boat with Jesus, right? It's the brokenness that, that is the, the, the most important item on Peter's resume. What he thinks disqualifies him actually is what qualifies him to be somebody that God can use. The second thing uh, to notice is that this, that this grace that is extended uh, to Peter is going to, is going to keep coming and it's going to fundamentally change Peter. You know, this miracle is repeated. There's bookends of this miracle. It happens early in Christ's ministry and then it happens really at, at the very end. Uh, John records this in John 21. After Christ's resurrection... Before his ascension, there's, there's another uh, time. The, the disciples have met the resurrected Christ. They're going through those 40 days. At some point, uh, Jesus isn't around, and Peter says, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going fishing, right? I, I need a little bit of time to process everything that's been going on. I'm going fishing. And some of the other guys say that they're going to go with them. And so they go out on the lake, and... Um, Reading John 21, uh, so they went out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, uh, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Later, we'll find out that he was 100 yards off. They don't recognize Jesus. He called to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord. Right? I mean, so John is the disciple that Jesus loved. John is, always describes himself that way. He doesn't say John. He says the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, so John recognizes the Lord. He says, We've been here. Right, this happened before. He, he, this miracle occurred once before. We know who this is. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, Peter wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water to swim to shore. The other disciples will follow bringing the fish. So it's, it's virtually identical to the earlier miracle with one profound difference. Right, the profound difference in this time is that as opposed to Peter saying, 
Get away from me, Lord. I cannot be in your presence. Peter is swimming right towards him. Peter has denied Christ. He's made a mess of things. All of that is out there. But Peter knows the grace of God. Peter understands who Jesus is and how this whole thing operates. And he cannot wait to get to Christ. So, so what we see here is the, is the profound grace of Jesus. Moving on. <clears throat> Number four. The invitation that Jesus extends is to reach others with the same offer. Jesus, uh, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you something. Right? He doesn't say, uh, follow me and I'll make you a leader. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you rich. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you happy. He says, follow me and I will make you something. I will make you into someone who catches others. That's the offer. That is what Jesus says to Peter. Now, in in fairness, Peter and James and John who are there, they, they don't decide to follow Jesus because of the offer. They don't say, okay, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to fish for men. Don't know what that means, but I, I'll sign up. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't do that. They're signing up to follow Jesus because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Right? Because of this miracle. That's what's got their attention. And furthermore, <clears throat> I don't know anybody who signs up for the offer, this offer, the plan. Right? I didn't. I didn't say, wow, I'm planning on being a doctor, but I guess I'll change and I'll go be a fisher of men. Sounds rewarding, right? Could be a consultant. No, I think I'll do this. No, I I didn't sign up for that. I signed up because I thought nobody else can take care of my sin and, and give me eternal life, right? That's why I'm in. But let's note the plan, right? Because the plan comes with the offer. And the plan is that we are involved in reaching out to others. Lots of people don't like the plan, uh, especially today in a pluralistic world where we're supposed to be open-minded to everything. The idea that Christ makes exclusive claims and we're to, we're to share those is uh, politically incorrect. Uh, pe- people, people, don't want, people don't want to be in those conversations. There's too much tension. There's too much strife. There. So I, I get that people don't like the plan, but It's the plan. It's always been the plan. So Jesus recruits these 12. They are going to eventually recruit others who are going to recruit others, who are going to tell others, right, and tell others, who are going to tell others. And it just keeps cascading down, telling others, telling others, until someone tells someone who told you. Scott Culley and Tom Gale told me. Um, I'm supposed to tell other people. So are you. That's the way it works. It's good news. It's not good philosophy. It's not good science. It's not good insight. You can't come up with this on your own. It's, 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 someone's got to tell you or you don't get it. That's the nature of the message. It's history. You don't know history unless somebody communicates the history to you. This Tuesday night at Alpha, <clears throat> we're, um, we're looking at the history in particular, about who is Jesus. If we take out the New Testament, 
Do we have a historical argument that such a person existed? And how, do we have enough information to, to look at these claims that he made? And can we trust the New Testament? Can we, can, is it reliable? How do, how do historians figure out what documents can be trusted and what, what documents can't? So that's what we're looking at, and the offer is always for you. It's only week two to bring your friends to this. To call them up and say, hey, you know, free meal and there's some sort of presentation, low-key, low-stress. You don't have to sing anything, sign anything, say anything, or do anything. No stress. I'm picking you up. Six o'clock is dinner. And, uh, you know, come with me this one time. We can't, can't make it any easier than that. We know that this is the plan. And then finally, the fifth point. <clears throat> It's important to note that they left everything uh, in order to follow. Peter, James, and John left the biggest catch of their life. uh, And they left the nets. They left the boat. It wasn't a cheap man's occupation. They're they're partners. There's There's a lot of investment. You would think, right, that they would have said, let me just, you know, let me let me get somebody to sell the fish. Let me list the boat and net on eBay. It'll take me just a couple hours. I, I, will, I will come with cash. Uh, but uh, they leave everything to follow Christ. This doesn't mean you've got to quit your day job. No, no, uh, that's not the message here. The message here is the relative value of following Christ versus the value of other things. And we need to see the value uh, of making Christ first. Well, there's more here. <clears throat> we could look at um, the kind of people uh, that Jesus recruits to his mission, the fact that he's working through people. We could look at the fact that Jesus sometimes will make asks that don't make any sense, right? Throw your nets out. Uh, obey. Doesn't make sense to you. Many people, I'm convinced, have never obeyed Jesus. They've just been persuaded by his arguments that this is the right thing to do. But they've never said, I don't get it, but I'm going to do it. There's, there's more here to look at, but let's just celebrate <clears throat> the, the incredible record we get, the amazing record we get of this amazing man who is more than just a teacher. He is God, and he gives a gracious offer. And when we repent, and when we say, I'm nothing, I'm broken, he says, great, come with me, let's change the world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, perhaps the most amazing thing of all is that we are not more amazed at who you are and what you have done and the offer that you have extended to us. Help us to be amazed by the things that um, should amaze us. Help us to be gripped by the things that should grip us. Help us to understand the plan and lean into it. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.